this clearly could have been a tighter project. I think an editor would, would have been <laughs> huge. And welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where musicians, friends, and critics get together to break down a classic album from the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll fill you in on some of the context behind the band and the album, we'll play a few select tracks, and then we'll vote on whether or not you need to hear this album before you die. Now, let me just say at the outset, we are first and foremost musicians and appreciators of recorded sound of all sorts. So we know how hard it is to create good original music, to put yourself out there, to create, right? But we all know life is much more fun when you poke fun at the stuff you love. So fair warning, we're going to take some shots at this album, but it's all in the name of good fun here. So today we're going to talk about an album that has been described by guitarist Nels Klein as one of the most incredible outpourings of creativity ever. So let's let that sink in for a little bit as we as we head into this journey here. And that's an album called Double Nickels on the Dime by punk rock band Minute and a Half Men. No, sorry. It's actually <laughs> it's Minute Men. But you're forgiven if you ever thought the name was in reference to the length of their songs, which you'll see is uh, not robust. Uh, we'll put it that way. <laughs> so let's dive right into the music with a track called Vietnam. We've got a taste for what we've been listening to the last week. Let's bop around the room here and get some tweet length reviews and introductions from our esteemed panelists. Let's go first to Rob. Hey, Alan. Thanks for tossing it to me. My tweet length review for this week is rebelling against the bloat and excess of the 1970s. Minutemen make a seemingly endless double album. Out of maximum <laughs> two song ideas. Uh, man. All right. We're going to get some uh, consistency here. I think. I'm, I'm, I'm projecting anyway. All right. Let's go over to Adam. All right, Alan. I'm coming in hot this week, but this is my tweet review. I can think of a number of things that would have been a better use of vinyl than a double LP, like garden hoses, shower curtains, windshield wipers, and the ever-important 3M vinyl foam earplug. <laughs> Windshield wipers are very important and valuable. They are. So they, they definitely keep the cars on the road. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> like that. Look, keeping it thematic. All right. Well, this is Alan here, and uh, my tweet length review is Minutemen are perhaps most known for their economical approach to playing music. 
very minimalist to the point. So it makes perfect sense that this record would feature a total of 43 tracks. Now, there may not be anywhere close to 43 good songs on this record, but there are enough good ones to render this, in my opinion, a mighty fine musical artifact. All right. Let's get into our overall impressions. So tweet lengths aside, I'm curious to to really dive in here. How, how was your week? What What was it like for you to go down this musical rabbit hole? I mean, I looked at, as you do when you bring up a an album on Spotify, you know, out of curiosity, you scroll to the bottom. Alan, as you said, the sheer number of songs and the length of this. And I was thinking as I was scrolling, what are the chances? What are the chances that there's a double album out there with over 40 songs on it that managed to run under my radar for my entire life? You mean a good one, right? (laughs) So yes, it was a difficult week, I'll say. (laughs) But for me, of all people, I, I will admit I'm probably the, you know, the least uh, well listened to on the podcast. So it was interesting and difficult. I'll second that. And I'll say I'd never heard this before this week. Of course, I've heard of Minutemen, but it's this is not my genre at all. Enter our friend Conan Neutron calling us rockist. This is not in right. our wheelhouse, right? This kind of punk lineage. I understand this is one of those records that is important with a capital I, and that I'm supposed to like. And despite my tweet, I'm going to tell you some things I liked about it, certainly. I do appreciate some of the aesthetic that this band is putting forth, the energy, the passion, and just the weirdness, frankly. That said, I did find that initial dissonance that we've all honed in on of jamming a Kano, which is their (laughs) big terminology, and putting together this 42-song record where literally the fourth side is just cast-offs, like labeled by the band as chaff. (laughs) That just seems dissonant to me, and I kind of couldn't get over that piece of it. It's too much of them to take in. I made it through this once, and then I watched a documentary on YouTube. It was about an hour and a half long. It kind of tracked through the band. and probably shorter than the album itself. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But they have a lot of live shows that they showed in the documentary and in comparison to the album it sounded terrible right their live stuff i understand it's probably an energy thing but when i came back to the album after watching some of their live stuff i actually appreciated the album more because i had gone into it thinking this guy is a absolute terrible guitar player that was kind of the first thing that stuck out like wow what a just a turd i can't believe this guy is doing this and then again on subsequent listens i was like well He's not that bad. He's decent, you know? So I think they're all actually really good players. In particular, I thought the drummer was is quite good yeah. and nuanced. I yep. just am not always a big fan of the choices they make, but those are two completely different things. And sure. I'm sure Alan is going to tell us some of this story, but just so Minutemen fans can relax just a little bit, I understand as well that they're coming from this early indie scene. And... I had read previously Our Band Could Be Your Life, which is a famous book about early indie bands of this time, and the Minutemen are one of the bands featured. In fact, that title comes from one of the songs that I think we're going to cover today. But I think one of the reasons they're important, again, I'm sure this is some of the story that Alan's going to tell, is they were this early wave of bands that really did everything themselves. They built a following through incessant touring, 
They spent little to no money on those tours, on those records, and they sort of proved that that was even a possibility. And we just take that stuff for granted now. So I'm aware of the lineage, at least to a certain extent, and credit where, where credit is due for blazing those paths. So, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about laying the tracks of indie. I think we've mostly talked about that in terms of musicality and, and musical choices, artistic choices, not so much about the business of being in a band. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. Totally. And that's all fair. And I think that, you know, you may have done just enough to stave off the uh, Minutemen stands that are going to brigade our <laughs> inbox momentarily. But I'm not going to dispute anything that you guys have said so far, but to, to just be crystal clear, like this breaks pretty much every rule of a quote unquote album. You know, there's nearly four dozen tracks. There's zero continuity in between the tracks um, and even fewer fucks that were given during the creation of this, <laughs> which I will say, I think what I kind of respect about it is that there's no pretense that they think that a lot of the filler is good. And so you may argue, well, why put it on? And we'll get into to a funny anecdote about why there are so many tracks on here. But I think there's a self-awareness about it that, you know, they're not trying to pass off that, hey, here's damn near 50 good songs. So one could logically argue that it shouldn't even be eligible for this list, let alone appear on it. But, you know, this isn't really a logical pursuit that we're uh, <laughs> engaging in <laughs> ourselves. Yeah, right. But this uh, is, I think, one of the things we're going to have to wrestle with here, and it it spurred my thinking on this matter, and I went ahead and reread a couple of the sections, including the Minutemen section of that that book I just mentioned, Our Band Could Be Your Life, that kind of tells their story, and I read the Black Flag one again as well. Anyway, is are we judging the music directly, or including its musical lineage? That's most of what we talk about on this show. Or do we need to include other actions of the band? Because it seems to me that the, their approach to being in a band is what's most influential, not the music itself. And so I'm sure we're going to draw some other touchstones to other weird indie one-off kind of records that don't sound like anything else. Violent Femmes is one that comes to mind. I'd be intellectually dishonest if I didn't draw a parallel to my beloved Violent Femmes <laughs> and music sure. like this. But I guess what I'm going to try to say here is I might not ultimately like this record that much, but I think I am capable of appreciating it nonetheless. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, and I think this sits in a place where, I mean, Adam, you mentioned the documentary earlier, which is called We Jam Econo, which is taken from a song that I think is on this album that refers to this whole idea of being economical DIY. It was actually the term was coined from this Econo line van that they drove around and that they slept in to save money. These guys were very working class. So, you know, they came from a family of middle class workers. They they did get a lot of support from their parents. What one one of the things that really came through in that documentary was that their their <laughs> D Boone especially, who we'll talk about, his mom was was very much like, "Hey, go make your own entertainment. Go make your own fun." Otherwise, you're going to be roaming the streets and nothing good is going to come of that. So, <laughs> but is that a is that a vote of confidence or what? I'm not sure what that is. Well, I think it speaks to this idea that these guys were making music for themselves and for their own sort of edification. And there clearly, clearly was no thought around commercializing this, at least on this album anyway. 
on what they thought people would like to hear. This was very much for them, sort of like a poetry in motion, you know, kind of situation. And, you know, back to some of my like general impressions on this, I was not familiar with their music for the most part at all. I've heard a couple songs pop up on different like playlists that I subscribe to and things like that. But for the most part, really was not familiar with this band. I knew, I think I alluded to this in a previous episode where we foreshadowed that this was coming. And, you know, I was aware of Mike Watt, who was their bass player. He's a, a fairly influential bass player. Oh, yeah. Um, so I was aware of like some of the nuances of this band. I will say there is a lot to dislike on this record. It, it is a slog. And I, like, I actually felt a genuine sense of accomplishment when I finished <laughs> listening to this for the first time. Like I kept checking sure. in on yeah. like, what track yep. am I on? Am I, Oh God. Okay. I'm on 35 out of 43. And by the time I got done, I actually felt like I like achieved something. And so there's, there's a lot of, of chaff is a perfect word for them to use for this like side of it. But to me, the highs were, I think the highs were incredible. And I think it's like very original. I can't really think of anyone else who sounds like this, to, to be honest. And it's at its heart a punk slash sort of hardcore album because that's the scene they were in and that's what they were doing. But it, it's really not those things at all to me, in my opinion. And so I I came away with this feeling like there was enough earnestness that I could set aside the nonsense and really just focus on the fact that you know, say what you want about the output, but I, I think there's a lot of really great playing and performance on this record. I agree there's a lot of great playing. However, I'm going to take issue with your earnestness comment, and we'll talk about it via the song, certainly. I do think the highlights of the album were when I sensed some level of sincerity and care. When they were trying, right. When they were trying I'm referring on a lyrical level, on a songcraft level, but actually specifically on a lyrical level. There were a few songs, and we're going to talk about them, where I sensed that as a listener. But oftentimes, I sensed that it was, to quote D. Boone, shit from an old notebook. Yeah. And that, that, that part of it turned me off. But that said, I will totally agree and reinforce throughout this episode, they are definitely original. I cannot think of another band that sounds like this. That's what made me draw that comparison to Violent Femmes. It just feels kind of singular and out of time. You know, the distinction, of course, and I'm sure this is what's holding Adam back as well, so I'll just say it right now, is the complete lack of tunefulness, the aggressively untuneful nature of this bumps me. I can even get down with dissonance and all that stuff, but to go back to something I think, Alan, you said, which is like, there's a fine line between discarding and not caring about your craft and just being art with a capital A. And so I feel like there are moments in here where, Rob, to your point, like, yes, they're, you can tell they put, they said, let's actually like write a song. Let's have a, a melody of lyrics or something. And then there's just the garbage that just came out. And it's like, what's the point of the garbage? Unless you're just trying to do the Yoko Ono freaking out the squares, coming back to that. Like, I'm just going to go scream at the, in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, call, call it art, and then that's my album. So I, 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 I'm having a hard time skirting that line of which side they're falling on, and potentially it's both. Yeah, I, th I think it's probably both, but I wanted to mention for the audience, too, for longtime listeners, that I, I happened to recently listen to our Velvet Underground episode. 
that was, I don't know, 120 episodes ago or some insane yeah, right. amount of time back. First, where we were, first was, 15, yeah. And it was quite contentious. And I was defending the art rock of the Velvet Underground. I think, Adam, you you were uh, staunchly hating on them. And I think, Alan, you were maybe somewhere in between, but maybe slightly more on Adam's side. I was, I was hating. But I think a lot of that conversation upon re-listen came down, and I stand by the vast majority of my opinions that I expressed there, and I'm sure you guys do too, and that's great. But I think a lot of it came down to what you're talking about, Adam, which is intent. We can judge art for what it is objectively and also for what the intent behind it is. And if it just feels like you're trying to cheese me off or pull the wool over my eyes, that can be a real turnoff. Right. I agree with that. And and I think what I will say is, I don't know, I, I, intent is clearly important. And so I think where I land on the intent for this is that it's not to, like it may have the... I don't know if it's unintended or not. The the byproduct of offending you specifically or of rubbing folks the wrong way. But I, I, I truly do think that this this was really for them and that they they just are utterly unconcerned with like what we think. Sure. That's great. You know, I don't know. That probably would serve most people well. Good on them. Let's talk about Minutemen and this album specifically. So just to sort of set the context here. So this record was released on July 3rd, 1984 via SST Records, which was an independent punk label that was founded by a member of the band Black Flag, who Minutemen are, are very closely associated with or, or you know, kind of linked to in musical history. I think Henry Rollins actually may have written some of the lyrics on this album. Well, Lyrics in air quotes, a lot of air quotes. <laughs> Lyric singular songs, lyrics <laughs> for all 40 albums. Since Henry Rollins just came up, I feel like I should read you this quote about their first tour together, which was with Black Flag, of which Henry Rollins was at the time the lead singer. Henry Rollins is quoted as saying, Mike Watt never stops talking. I think I'm going to punch Mike's lights out before this is over. <laughs> I mean, Henry Rollins, of all people, Rock like I, I would imagine having that guy mad at you, <laughs> dude. He's intense. Uh, yeah, I'd... well, he's a he's a self admitted liar. If you listen to uh, early nineties <laughs> MTV, <laughs> so this is it, it's their their third album, but they they did have a bunch of EPs and compilations that sort of came before this. One of which I shit you not, and this will come as no surprise. One of their EPs. I think it was our first one. It's seven songs and it's six minutes in total. <laughs> wow. So maybe that's where they started to get this like econo economic yeah, sort of thing going on. I guess the song length thing is a joke to them. It's an inside joke for them because the reality is that you could have combined any three of these songs and called it a song and I would have bought it because most of them only have one section. There's a few exceptions to that, but most only have an A section. So feel free to just pull them to put them together. How would I know the difference? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, yeah, I, I can't really speak for like the the madness behind that, but yeah, this clearly could have been a tighter project. I think an editor would, would have been <laughs> huge. Now, interestingly enough, so so like I said, this this was released on July third, nineteen eighty four, but it could have been released a little sooner actually, if it weren't for the band Husker Du, which I don't. Never know if I'm pronouncing that right, if it's Husker or Husker. But as the story goes, you know, Minutemen had already written enough material to release a full length album in 1983. But as they were putting the final touches on 
the album, they had heard or caught wind of this double album called Zen Arcade that that Husker Du was about to release. Now, they were label mates in SST. They played in a similar scene, although you're not from the same like geographical area. You know, Minimum were from uh, San, San Pedro or as they would say, San Pedro, California. But they played in very similar circles, you know, this sort of early 80s punk rock. And so when Minutemen heard that Husker Du was releasing a double album, they thought it would be funny to go back into the studio and furiously write and record another full-length album's worth of stuff. So much so that they even put, take that, Huskers, in the liner notes Mostly just for fun, but that's kind of hilarious. That's the literal reason why it's as long as it is. And so, (laughs) yeah, logically speaking, it's absurd and ridiculous. But again, having that like self-awareness, I'm okay with it because they just don't give a fuck. These guys definitely have a sense of humor. That is something that I took away from the interviews in, in that documentary. And some of these songs and the titles and the lyrics, too. You could tell that they're not taking themselves too seriously, which is something I appreciate. But again, at the same time, I wish you took yourselves a little more seriously. See, I think they should have leaned into the humor side of things, at least to get me on board, because it felt like it was half taking the piss and half freshman poli-sci major corners you at a party. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I think that conjured many actual people in my mind. <laughs> right? Same here. That's why we're all laughing so hard. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the band itself and sort of how they came together. And that that might shed some light on possibly like why they are the way that they are or were. So the band itself was formed in 1980 in, again, in San Pedro, California, which I think is a suburb of L.A. At the time, it was very working class. Um, it still might be, but... I just assume gentrification has taken over anything that used to be good. Uh, so I don't know if that's still the case now, but I think that environment served as this sort of breeding ground for a punk movement of which Minutemen were really the driving force of that area. And you have already mentioned a few of the names here, but just to sort of be, be formal about it, the the band was a trio that consisted of lead singer and guitarist, lead singer again in air quotes, Dennis Boone, who went by D Boone. So that's, that's his, his deal. Bassist Mike Watt and drummer George Hurley. I like the anecdote about how he called himself D Boone because D was his slang for marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that and I was like, I never heard that before. And then I saw that it was his slang. (laughs) Like a group of five-year-olds who make up their own language. Like what? I mean, some of this is endearing, if I'm being honest. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you you mentioned the making up their own language thing, because that's really one of the big stories about this group is that these guys were super tight. So Mike Watt and D Boone met when they were like 13. So as your classic, you know, meet in high school, start playing in bands together very early on. You know, there's stories about them just jamming on smoke on the water with each other for hours and hours upon end and finding that enjoyable. And so because they were, you know, essentially like best friends, some people have described them as like musical soulmates almost, but Mike Watt, D Boone were inseparable. were playing music together. 
and they were huge fans of early punk bands like the Stooges and, and others, but they were also equally into some more like mainstream rock, like Credence and even some of the weirder rock bands like Blue Oyster Cult and Steely Dan. But they had this really eclectic set of influences that I think ended up giving them a little bit more you know, breath musically than what you might see in a punk rock band. And even hearing some of those stories in the documentary about how they first started playing and just how they really didn't know what they were doing, but didn't really right. care either. <laughs> I heard a story that apparently D Boone was playing bass at first, but his mom literally said she didn't want him to play bass for reasons that are still unclear to me. And so she, I think they're clear audience. If you think about it, <laughs> hey, well, 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 that's not, I'm not going to abide. Mamas this. don't let your boys grow up to be bass players. <laughs> so she was a good mom in, in other words. Right. <laughs> and going back to just how, I mean, we all start at this point, where you don't know. Like he said, he didn't know what the fat strings when he went into the music store and he picked it up and he was like, wow, what is this guitar? This is crazy. And they were saying that like he didn't know how to tune it and that they got it back home and were playing and he just thought that some musicians like their strings real loose. Like he didn't understand the idea of tuning. It was just like, oh, well, some guys like it, blah, blah, blah. And some guys like it, bling, bling, bling. <laughs> yeah, he, he, literally, loved. he literally thought it was... Uh, that string tension was just a preference. And right. So- <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which he carried forward throughout his career. But look, so I, I you know, Rob, you mentioned in, in our pre-roll and other conversations that there was some connection, at least in your mind, to the chop. And I think you guys were very musically solid, but I think that aspect of, hey, let's teach someone how to play bass for the specific purpose of being in this band and Tom will learn drums on the fly. I, yeah, I got a lot of that sort of vibe here. No, I agree. Again, I'd be intellectually dishonest if I didn't admit that I was in a band like that. And for the audience, right. The chop was Tom and Phil and a couple of the friends Our our band from when we were in our twenties. And basically it was a band experiment because three of the five people didn't know how to play their instrument, including Tom, who was a bass player as we know from the show, but we pushed to drums and learned drums on the fly. And so, and the whole premise there, not unlike the Minutemen, was energy first. You know, we're going to douse the fire hose of energy off the stage, and that's going to cover up for a lot. And yeah, I do agree with an aspect of that aesthetic. Of course, I can't see Minutemen live, but I get what they're trying to do. And so there is a charm there. I can't I can't deny it for sure. And and I think, you know, the thing we've already alluded to some of this, the thing that really struck me about listening to them is I'm not a, a punk uh, historian or aficionado, but I did have a little bit of a punk phase growing up. I was really struck by the musicality and the the variance in, you know, some of these songs have a straight up jazz kind of feel and not stale jazz that you might see in in a jazz club but jazzy chords you know, so much so that a lot of you know they play these like hardcore shows and these punk shows and they fit in from a you know adam you mentioned those live videos that were in the dock mm-hmm. a lot of those songs were, were pretty like hardcore abrasive punk but then you listen to this album and there's you know there's some country there's yeah, right. a little bit of funk and 
it felt to me like a nice brew of different things that were happening here. In terms of the the album itself, so I think another one of the reasons that this album is as weird as it was is they they cite two main inspirations for the creation of this album. One is in terms of the way they sequence the songs, they they took a page from that album Umaguma the Pink Floyd album that was released in 1969 in, in which the band decide, yeah, if you're going to pick a Pink Floyd album, that's definitely yeah, right. <laughs> which, which sorry, side note. So like I grew up and I, my dad didn't have a lot of Pink Floyd albums. And so I didn't grow up listening to a lot of Pink Floyd albums. He had one and it was the Uma Guma album. And I remember being like, dad, you have a Pink Floyd album. He's like, yeah, give it a listen. And like, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's space noise, psychedelic jam stuff. <laughs> And I was immediately like, oh, this is Pink Floyd? And then like a decade later, I came back and was like, oh my God. So that's funny. Again, connecting a lot of threads here. They took a page from Umaguma in the sense that each band member got a side to program. Yeah. But it's to me, from the story I heard, it sounded like they took a page from middle school kickball, which is they sat around with the songs <laughs> across the room and they each picked in order. <laughs> they, they basically just had like a fantasy draft right. for how to... Right. <laughs> Which that is pretty, that's pretty funny. I like that. Right. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, exactly. And so they, because there was only three people in the band, they had an, an odd number, and that's where the idea of the chaff came from. So for people who don't know that term, I'm sure you've heard separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat means like the good, the substance, and the chaff is like the shit that you throw away. <laughs> so they needed a fourth side to yeah round out this affront to Husker Du. <laughs> so they <laughs> appropriately named it Side Chaff, which again, an admission that the songs present were basically leftovers. If you're go if you're jamming Econo, you can't leave anything on the cutting room floor, guys. Clearly. <laughs> Especially when you rushed in to spite another band to just crank out a bunch of stuff. Right. But the other sort of inspiration for this album at least the the title and the, and the theme, if you can even call it that, was the Sammy Hager song, I Can't Drive 55, which had just come out, you know, a few months before. And so if you sort of break down the, the name of the album, Double Nickels refers to 55, which was the speed limit. I think it was like the federal speed limit that you could drive on a freeway. And on the dime referred to Interstate 10 in California. So I think their mindset in connecting their music with with Sammy Hager was, hey, you're not a badass just because you drive over the speed limit, you know, because ultimately you're writing lame songs. So we'll just go ahead. We'll drive the speed limit. We'll do our thing. But where we're going to be reckless and badass is with how we make our music. And so but I think where they found themselves also is like, hey, we've got. 43 tracks and there's really no theme so they decided the theme would be cars but <laughs> right. i did and i did appreciate the sammy hagar story because in addition to what you said the gist i got was they were saying this is what rock and roll has become this is what rock and roll rebelliousness is now is speeding a little bit on the interstate this is so lame right <laughs> the spirit of rock and roll was supposed to be much more raw and like you said reckless and dangerous than that, you know? And so a commentary on that. I also thought on the dime kind of had that double meaning of directly on the spot, like exactly 55. Cause even in the cover shot, it is right on 55 on the speedometer. And hilariously, I think they spent like two days 
trying to get the perfect photo, which is, again, is like where they decided to spend their time and energy on this is hilarious because apparently they spent two days trying to nail him looking in the it's Mike Watt on the cover looking in the mirror of the Econoline van on exactly 55 and having this like shit eating grin on his face and the San Pedro sign the highway and sign. the San Pedro sign so it was that's right it wouldn't have been that easy to get certainly and just driving around to be clear they could have written an additional 60 songs I was gonna say they could have done vocals for a thousand more songs <laughs> Speaking of the uh, two days that they spent looking for or or trying to perfect this shot, it brings us to uh, one of our favorite segments here, which is by the numbers. So a few of these numbers we've already checked in, but it just bears repeating. The number 43 is the number of tracks on this album. Now, in the original release, it's unclear to me how many songs were left off for what we're looking at as like the Spotify version. And there's been a bunch of CD re-releases in the meantime that have varying amounts. So I think the original vinyl had a few more than this, but 43 is the officially codified number on Spotify. The number 90, which is how many seconds on average each track (laughs) comes in at. So if you just straight up divide like the number of tracks by the album length, you get to about 90 seconds. Then there's number six, unsurprisingly, which is the number of days it took to record this entire thing. Mind blown. <laughs> yeah, not. it definitely sounds like that. Definitely sounds. They were interviewing, it might have been the engineer or the producer, where they were saying, and it, I'm not sure if it was this album or another one, Alan, but where they really wanted to strip it back and just do two tracks and mix it in the room to tape. So I don't even know. Did they mix this or was it just live and printed right to tape right there? It was recorded mostly live. And funny enough, that's another one of the numbers that I had, which was which was eleven hundred, which was the amount of dollars it cost to mix this album in its entirety. (laughs) And it was mixed in like one day. So everything about it was very bare bones. There was. You know, the and and I think these guys also did not use effects, did not do overdubs, they did live tracking. If that wasn't obvious, <laughs> you know, listen. <laughs> so, 1100 total cost of the record, right? For the six days, is that, what, that what you meant? That's to mix the album, that's all it's oh, interesting. I don't know if that also includes like studio time, but you know, they, they were also famous for. Oh, here's a funny bit. They're famous for like they're minimalist in terms of how they would spend money to record. So they would do all the tricks of recording in the middle of the night and, you know, to save costs. But I came across a soundbite that that said and they would do all sorts of other unorthodox things among them practice the songs before they got into the studio. (laughs) Wait, what? Are just people just blowing studio time at like learning the songs? So on punk, dude. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, it's so so unpunk to practice, but a few other numbers here. So the number two sixty seven, which is the ranking that this sits currently on Rolling Stone's greatest five hundred albums. So again, you know, say what you want about about these guys, but the influence is definitely there. And then the final number, which is a little more unfortunate, is the number zero, which is the number of shows that they did as Minutemen after D Boone passed away. So a year, maybe a year and a half after this, he, 
D Boone, the the main sort of singer of the band, guitar player, was killed in a van accident in the Arizona oh, desert on I ten. Uh, strangely enough, apparently he was sick with a fever and was laying down in the van without a seatbelt and like an axle broke on the van or something. So he was only twenty seven. So again, another uh, you know, oh my curse god, of the wow. twenty seven. Yeah, that sucks, man. That's wild. And those vans. I mean, I have limited, but some experience driving around in one of those crappy 16-passenger vans I think we paid 800 bucks for. I mean, God forbid. Jesus, those things are so dangerous. Yeah, totally. So, and that really, that was basically the end of the band. And I think because Mike Watt and Dee Boone were such musical soulmates almost, he actually, and uh, George Hurley, the drummer, they had to be convinced by other bands among them, like, you know, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth and some Jay Mascus from Dinosaur Jr. to like, hey, dust yourself off, get up and play again. But the reason I mentioned the Zero is because they they did play shows after this, but they never referred to themselves as Minutemen. For these mm. shows, they would say things like a duet that is getting together to reunite on Minutemen songs, but they were very intentional about Minutemen are over. We will do some reunions. We'll do our own side projects. But that was that was sort of it for the project proper. And to have somebody taken a twenty-seven not from drugs, which in the music scenario, it, music scene is is odd as well, right? Yeah, <laughs> just that's unheard of. That's a real tragedy. Yeah, very much so. Okay, let's get into a little bit more. I think we've done some pretty good table setting here but let's get into some of the tunes themselves uh let's let's hit let's check out number one hit song alan can i throw in a potential additional by the number here that i read that i would just found fascinating of course so in passing one of the guys it might have been boone or maybe the the bass player said that you know they would do 32 song sets (laughs) (laughs) now for those of you we're not super familiar, again, with the average length of a song. You know, usually an hour is 15 songs, 16 songs. And these guys are doing 32 songs in an hour live. And I don't know how you would remember these songs and differentiate them. Like, oh, wait, was this the the 32nd ditty that goes like this or the other one? So I just found found that hilarious. Well, you're assuming that they gave a shit about playing them clean and... <laughs> In- <laughs> or just remembering them. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't okay, know. Okay, that said, after all that, though, they are, it, they do sound practiced. I'll say that. I don't have to like all the material, but they, I didn't hear any obvious mistakes other than the singing, <laughs> which I'd seem purposeful. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a few. I, I don't know that I'd call them mistakes, but there are definitely times where they hit, you know, they all hit it at the same time, but it's a little off. And, you know, but yeah, they're, they were all in on this and and they definitely put in the work. All right, let's get into some more of the music here. Let's take a listen to number one hit song. Love 
Groove here was one of the cooler grooves. I like the title is funny. I get, I get yeah. what they're trying to do. I don't think all their titles are funny. And I thought he actually had some lyrics for a second, and then he just drops in the blah 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 etc <laughs> line, which is which is kind of funny. But you know, he had, he had something going for a second there. One of the things that came across in the documentary was people kept referring to these not, not as haikus in a literal sense, but like. That's sort of the sum total of what some of these lyrics are. I actually did like, I, I thought the blah, blah, blah and the, and the ETC chant. To me, it was it's sort of a, a satire on what a number one hit song would be. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Better, vapid. And, you know, so I, I kind of like that part. Yeah, I think it's one of the better tracks, probably. This is the one that I, I realized, oh, these guys have a sense of humor. This is This is pretty funny. And this this one also made me think that the drummer is really solid. Oh yeah, on this on this track and and nuance too. He's definitely not playing obvious stuff. I suppose you could say that about all of them. But I really did notice right. the drummer uh, quite a bit. They did some really interesting stuff. Totally. I think if you I think if you pulled this out of context and said this is a a punk band, I don't think you would agree with that characterization. No. Like it, I don't think it's it sounds like that at all. And I think the rhythm section is really groovy. Like this was one of my highlights of the album. And this was one of the songs that I've heard sneak into different playlists that I listened to and and was sort of surprised that this was a Minutemen song. I also feel like I heard a little bit of later sort of like what Sublime was trying to do with it sounds like very garagey sort of a solo that's not great, but is just sort of take it or leave it. But yeah, I, I really dug this song. I think it was a it was a highlight for me. Yeah, good good work on the focus list. I thought you uh, if if the entire album was your focus list, this would have been a fantastic week. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, it's funny when I first put it together. I did our normal like five to six song, and I was like, this is like nine. This minutes. is not enough. <laughs> it's not enough sections to discuss. Not not enough things happen. <laughs> right? No, no. But this was this was a winner for me. All right, let's move on to the next track on the list, which is called History Lesson Part 2. Our band will be your life. Okay, so this is one of the ones I was mentioning where it felt sincere. They're talking about themselves, their friendship. Our band can be your could be your life. Like I mentioned, it became the title of that book. It's kind of an iconic line and a mission statement for the band. And I think the by the way, I would recommend the book. It's 
profiles a whole bunch of bands, Black Flag, Minutemen, Sonic Youth, Butthole Surfers, Husker Du, and just kind of talks about the progression of that time of bands breaking away from record labels, making their own record labels, distributing their music through fanzines and through grassroots efforts. And the author of that book, I should mention, really charts the end of that period as when Nevermind was released, because that meant that the underground had become the mainstream. And they effectively, the indie bands had won. That's at least how that author categorizes it. So yeah, I thought this was good because it showcased their sincerity. If they have three modes, one which is super jokey, taking the piss, one which is sincere, I, I kind of like both of those modes. The, the third mode is the one I don't like, which is politically preachy and teenage slam poetry, which I, we'll get to. Put poor man's Jamiroquai to uh, thread some, <laughs> <laughs> Throwback. some things together. Also, I like how he mentions Mike Watt twice by full name, but I does know. not he, give the drummer a shout out. <laughs> oh, what a kick in the teeth. Well, I think he was going back to, you know, they were really like boys. They were sort of a unit. But yeah, I agree. If I were the drummer, I'd be like, can I get like one name drop here? <laughs> yeah, because he mentions Mike Watt a couple other times on the album too, right? Well, then he also mentions Joe Strummer and you know all these other <laughs> all these other people. He does somehow manage to emote as well with just kind of talking, which I found interesting because it had it had this kind of teenage angsty emotion to it as he was talking. So I thought it was cool that he got that across, but at the same time. You know, a mediocre song on an album with all a lot of garbage can sound like a masterpiece. So amongst the rest of these tunes, this is like, oh, but in reality, it's like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Well, funny enough. So Mike, Mike Watt actually wrote this song and there's, we should mention the way they write songs. They're very collaborative with songwriting, or at least they, they all write, I should say that. But then, you know, Mike doesn't sing the songs that he wrote. He sort of hands them off. So maybe that's why his name was in there so much. I, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> it's a badass move. That makes it even weirder that he gets called out so many times, right? <laughs> maybe it's that he writes the, maybe it's that they write the music and the melody and that D Boone writes the lyrics. I, I'm not entirely sure. They had some sort of hive mind, you know, thing going on, but on balance, I, this was, this was my favorite song on the album. I hear your point, Adam, that it can feel just sort of like it's all right, but in a sea of, chaff it's it seems better than it really is but to me i feel like it like i love that line our band could be your life like before i knew that that was turned into a book i don't normally grab onto lyrics but i really grabbed onto that specific lyric because it just felt like working men were, were just dudes playing instruments and and you know very heartfelt let's talk for a second about the nature of punk music because that you're right that our band could be your life speaks to me as well and when I was in the chop, we talked about this concept a lot, and I didn't know about this band or anything, you know, not that I thought the sentiment was unique, but we talked a lot about how the audience is us and we're the audience, right? This like great equalizing, the stage is a construct, it almost doesn't matter. And that was a defense mechanism against not being amazingly tight at our instruments, of course. But anyway, I think of that as the the key punk aesthetic, right? And we're none of us here are punk historians, clearly, but maybe part of what they were responding to is, I think when when you evoke the word punk, 
to your average person out there who's not a deep fan or music fan, they think of like downstrokes and heavy guitars and distorted and like Johnny Rotten, Sex Pistols, Ramones kind of stuff, right? That's sort of where it started. To be honest, even that stuff was a throwback to the 50s. But then it seems like it quickly became, you know, that got so commercialized between the fashion and the excess, clearly, of even those bands we just mentioned, the drugs, all that stuff. So I do respect bands like this for taking back that mantle and saying punk is about being the same as everyone else, but showing that anyone can get up and do this. So get off your ass and do it, audience, if you want to. And just be weird and just be yourself. And if you look at these guys, again, in that documentary, Rob, some of your touch points, right? The, the spiked hair, the spiked silver on the shoulders and, you know, just that leather, everything's black. These guys just look like a bunch of just, I don't know, they could have just been hanging out in their mom's basement, which they probably were sure. and just wearing a t-shirt, like completely unassuming. And to come out and on some of these really aggressive thrashy songs, it was pretty stark to, that these guys were making these sounds when, again, at a time when you expect, you know, uh, a lot of mohawks and stuff. And I guarantee you they got a lot of crap about it from the punks. The fact that they were even a part of this scene and weren't dressing that way and weren't conforming. Listen, every subculture wants to believe it's nonconformist, but the reality is they quickly become an in-group, and if you're not in there, they reject you, and it must have been challenging, right, in the face of, of that and this kind of social pressure to conform to those punk norms, and they didn't do it. So good on them. Absolutely. Well, and and they also, not even just musically, but there's, it became very clear to me in going through the research and the documentary that, and I know I'm going to offend some, some punk fans here, but it's just sort of the way it is. Like a lot of punks, especially during this era, like really were not great at playing their instruments. And to your point, like it was much more about, or, or in many cases more about like the scene and not in a superficial way, but that feeling of belonging, that feeling of connectedness with the audience, that the audience really wasn't that interested in whether you could play your instruments or not. And there's a lot of stories that Mike Watt tells about how they would show up to a lot of these punk gigs and, and the other bands they were playing with were like, no, no, these guys are the shit. Trust me. But that they would get spit on. They would get booed because they were actually good. And because they actually were playing oh, music that had other influences in it. And that wasn't just, you know, the, the upstrokes and the, the shit you're talking about, Rob. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's one of these scenarios. I imagine a lot of genres are like this where when punk first started, we've talked about it a little bit, right? In the, if you're thinking of punk as starting in CBGBs in New York, it was very inclusive of a lot of different bands, the police would play there, opening for Talking Heads or vice versa, and Blondie, and also the Ramones and the bands we kind of think of as punk, right? Elvis Costello was punk when he first came out. It didn't have a genre meaning. Then I think a couple bands really took off, the ones, partially the ones we mentioned, like Sex Pistols and Ramones, and that became the style that music corporations were going to push. And so this was a rebellion against that. To go back to say, and I think SST, the record label, deserves a lot of credit here, too, for saying, we don't care about signing other bands that sound like Black Flag. We want other bands that embody this be-yourself-do-what-you-want-to-do artistic aesthetic. So, yeah, I'm of course, I'm, I'm all for that. It, it, it's funny how quickly 
a movement like that, a cultural movement like punk, got commoditized. As things do, you know, once once the dollar enters the picture. You mentioned the police, though, which I think is, in my opinion anyway, you might disagree, a decent segue into the next song that we're going to listen to, which is called The Glory of Man. of man I work my way backwards using cynicism the time monitor the space measurer Bravo on writing two, possibly even three sections to this song. <laughs> Call me Normcore, guys, but I like when songs have changes. <laughs> Normcore. Dude, you're such a square. Come on, man. You gotta live a little here. I made a note about that, too. I said, wow, something happened. <laughs> I, so the reason I brought the police comparison up is because as I was listening to this, for some reason, this felt like it could fit on the synchronicity album. Like there's something about it that just has a little bit of like a sinister sort of quality to it. The, the bass, I love the bass on this. It's nice and fuzzy and grindy. It's also the Epic probably of the album and clocking it at a robust uh, two minutes and 57 (laughs) seconds. I hear, I'm surprised it's taking this long to talk about the bass. He, what do you think about his bass style? I feel like I hear, I hear some of like flea, Obviously, Flea's way more funky than this guy, but there's something about his attack that reminds me a little bit of, of that style of playing. I mean, what do you what do you think about the bass approach overall, Alan? You know, and Flea is mentioned very prominent, or not mentioned, but he shows up very prominently in the documentary talking about Mike Watt and the band. He was a huge influence. It's funny, I actually felt like some of these songs were precursors to what the chili peppers were doing with like mother's milk and, and blood sugar, sex magic. I think his bass playing, it's very busy and I don't always love busy, but I think in a group like this where it's the power trio format, very melodic, very, it's, he's a very heady bass player in a way that might not come through. He talks specifically, I wish Tom were here for this. He talks about, how at some point he just decided he didn't want to use a pick anymore and went to like straight finger style, possibly for this album. So there's some stuff where he's doing slap and other albums where he's doing more like finger style funk. I think he's a great bass, like not just a good bass, but I think he's a great bass player. And you see some of these guys show up in, in, you know, punk music, the, uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name now. I want to say it's like maybe Lars Frederiksen or something from from Rancid. Just an amazing bass player. So I, I'm i a huge Mike Watt proponent. The other thing that is worth mentioning, though, and this is a little bit of sort of mixing nerdery, but the D. Boone's guitar style was very much, he jacked up the treble, basically cut all the mids and all the bass. Mm. And so they almost formed this inherent 
like pocket where it was like, regardless of what he's playing, just the tonality of the bass is going to shine through because there's an absence of low end in the guitar. Yeah. So I think some of that was very deliberate too. I read a quote or one of the guys in the documentary said that his guitar tone, uh, he described it as a buzzing insect and a dentist drill. (laughs) (laughs) It's very pleasing aesthetically. Yeah, absolutely. You make a good point about how they fit together though, certainly. And that is, I think as a trio, you really have to be conscious even more than in other bands of what the other people are and are not playing and where you fit. And as a counterpoint to something like the police, where I think a lot of times sting is laying out because the guitar is filling a lot of space, has reverb drums are filling a lot of space. I noticed a lot of times D Boone is just not playing partially because he's singing, maybe just not. So Mike Watt has a lot of area to carry and he fills it. Uh, very nicely he feels like the heart of the band musically to me i would agree with that i think it's a a lot of interviews i've seen of folks will say like technically speaking they feel like the drummer george was the most sort of technically proficient which is kind of funny because i think he was self-taught and hadn't really even been playing for that long when this album came out Maybe it was just his sort of innate talent or influences. But yeah, I do feel like the bass, you know, you brought up Violent Femmes earlier, and I feel like it. there's a similarity there where if you listen to their music, it's very bass forward in a way that's not, it's not running everything over. It's not like dubby forward, but mm-hmm. it's very melodic and, you know, drives things. And I think that definitely happens uh, in this well, case. Can we talk about, since you just mentioned the drummer and maybe his relative inexperience, there is this concept, and we talked about it a lot in the shop when we made Tom be a drummer. And he, I'm sure Tom would admit he did a journeyman's job at, at the task, certainly. But he was not ever really a good drummer. But in a way, that helped him. Because you don't fall into these traps. You don't just play rock beat one as a bass line. You kind of have to write very actively what you're going to do and plan it very actively. So I just wonder if that maybe is a part of it. I think this guy's rudiments are, are really, really strong, certainly. He sounds certainly like he practiced a lot, even if he hadn't played in a lot of bands or whatever. But the fact that you just don't have the muscle memory to coast can be helpful. Yeah, like the the whole necessity is the mother of invention, right? Like that so often breeds styles. Like we've heard about guitar players who, you know, are missing fingers, so they have to do something. But because they have to do it a special way, they get this really unique sound that nobody else gets. And so that that is a very interesting point. Yeah, sure. And you're not beholden to expectations or what's traditional or what people think you should do. Yeah, I I agree. I think there's definitely a lot to that. All right. So let's uh, we're going to, as the DJs say, we're going to change things up a little bit. (laughs) DJs don't say that, but they, you know, signify that changes are coming, so to speak. Let's get to a track called the You Need the Glory. This was my favorite track on the record. No, I'm just kidding. It was terrible. <laughs> I, was gonna say, shut, 
It's like, man, you really threw me for a for a curve here. <laughs> please tell me this was on side four. I'm not sure where the sides end, but it was. Please tell me this is one of the chaff songs. <laughs> you know, let, I'm gonna check on that. But I actually think this might be the number one draft pick for George Hurley. Oh my god! No, it is. It's the first track off of side George. Jeez. So he, he clearly doesn't give a shit. Like, yeah. Let's just let's just put that out there. <laughs> side George, I love it. <laughs> so I, I clearly I, we don't need to say much about this song. I know we're we're gonna kind of veer into some of the tr- the tracks on here that you know I definitely have a problem with. So I don't know how much needs to be said on this, but th- this I, I don't really know what this is supposed to be. This had to be one that they threw together. And just for the excuse of making more songs, right? Like, they're, I don't know. This reminds me of that Van Morrison record we alluded to where he's just cheesing off the record label by just... Oh, yes, the F.U. album <laughs> where he's just, yeah, I've got ringworm. Talking about whatever's <laughs> in the room. Ringworms everywhere. Actually, come to think of it, it kind of sounds like Devendra Bonhart, too. I kept going back to Devendra Bonhart during this week because I know one of our big complaints about his was that similarly he had you know 30 to 70 second songs and it was just like a snippet of an idea and then it would just end uh, and it was done on you know like a Tascam tape recorder just sitting in a room yeah and so I'm trying to dis- I'm trying to distinguish between the two efforts well he's he's not cool like Miniman are. right <laughs> so that's why it sucks oh okay. and why this is good yeah like, that's why what don't you punk. understand this is classified as punk, man. Now, I, I wanted to put this on the list in the name of, you know, I know I'm doing a lot of uh, fanboying here for this group. But like, again, there's a lot of stuff on here that I mean, there's just I, I can't think of a single reason why you need to put this on a record that's not lacking in content or in in material. Minutemen fans I'm sure I'm, I'd be surprised if you listened this far, honestly. But please, when you write in and yell at us, tell me why this <laughs> stuff is good. Maybe not this specific song, although if you feel free to give it a shot. But there's a lot of this kind of material on the record. And so I actually think the focus list and the songs we've talked about so far aren't overly indicative of the actual experience of listening to the whole album. Because I, I like most of the stuff we've already mentioned and i like several of the songs you put on the focus list alan but amongst 42 songs i think more are closer to this one totally agree unfortunately yeah you know i will say that was part of the challenge in putting together the list of what we would sort of focus on this week because i would say it verges on it's maybe not half but maybe like 40 percent 35 percent of the album is kind of just like this and it's essentially throwaway stuff And that does have to be held against them when evaluating this. And so, you know, but I didn't want to make us death march through like 10 of these (laughs) non-songs. Just to prove a point. Thank you. Thank you for that. Just to do what they did to us. I don't, you know, I don't need to just. (laughs) I'm sure based on everything you told me about this band that they never could have dreamed that we'd be sitting here talking about this album in revered tones like this. So it's not 40, 40 years in the future. Exactly. It's not really their fault. No, it's not. But again, like I, I was struck by how many people in that documentary do talk about him in those reverential tones. I mean, it's like a listers that are, are being 
you know, interviewed in that, you know, it's like flea Sonic youth, dinosaur junior, like black flag. That's what, that's where they sit now. And again, like, I think it's worth holding some of this stuff up and saying at least like, hold on a second. This, this, this is not, I, this is, this ain't it. I can't remember exactly what record it was in reference to, but somebody wrote us and tried to explain the context of being, a music fan in this time in the early eighties and how insanely bland everything seemed. And then you would hear one truly bizarre artifact like this, which of course you wouldn't hear it on the radio or, and these guys wouldn't be on Johnny Carson or something. You'd have to get it. You know, the way you even become a fan of this band is part of the marketing hook, right? Because you have to know somebody who knows somebody who goes to this show so I think it was probably just a breath of fresh air for a lot of people, maybe for a lot of folks that you just mentioned, Alan, the first or one of the first things they heard that just broke convention completely. For those reasons, you know, it's hard to call back that context since we didn't live through it. But for those reasons, I, I can understand some of it. Totally. That. Totally. Well, I think li- listening to music in your formative years where, you know, clearly we are no longer in that period of our lives, but you know, I'm sure you could go back and look at some of the things that we hold, you know, sank or sanct, if that's even the right pronunciation of that word. There's definitely like a, at what point in your life did the music enter your, your world? And, and I think that colors it. I think there's also an aspect of cool after the fact that plays into this as well. So again, watching that documentary, just hearing people fawn over these guys, somebody compared D Boone's guitar playing to Wes Montgomery, which he's, a, you know, D Boone's a good guitar player, but that is like, that's, that is sacrosanct. And you know, he played a ninth chord once though. And like, that's jazz, baby. <laughs> and there was some, some guy saying D D Boone's, you know, spiky, trebly guitar, uh, tone was, how did they put it? He learned later from Mike Watts, the bass player, that it was really a political decision for them to separate the bass and the treble in a very distinctive way as sovereign states to represent <laughs> political sovereignty. Dude, he just liked to play high guitar. Like, come okay. on, man. Yeah, now we're getting into the highfalutin BS that I don't care right, for exactly. about this so band. That, yeah, right, right. Hey, Robert Criscow liked it, so I, I'm going to say oh, it's, well, it's well, there you have I it. feel, as the guitar player... Well, Adam's a guitar player too, but I feel compelled to mention that, yeah, D. Boone definitely does not sound like Wes Montgomery, but for all those <laughs> bass pick debate stands out there listening, Wes Montgomery did not use a pick. He was all thumb. All That's thumb. Right. He turned his That's thumb right. into a pick. Yeah. Hell ah. yeah. So uh, almost like Derek Trucks style, maybe not as much thumb, but he's also a famous non-pick guitar player. I think a lot of guys play with all their fingers, but I, to my knowledge, Wes Montgomery is the only really famous one who literally just did the up-down stroke with his thumb as if it was a pick, which is really strange. Ah, that I did not know. And if you go back yeah. and listen to him now with that in your mind, you're going to be like, wow, that is really impressive. <laughs> really impressive, yeah. Man, you could have made life a lot easier on yourself. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> All right, let's slide into our final track here, which will be a bit of a familiar one for you, whether you know it or not, which is a song called Corona.
So clearly it's impossible to separate this from the Jackass theme song, which is, you know, where you've probably all heard this before. Having said all that, though, you know, trying to listen to this with fresh ears, which is a bit impossible. I think this was a really cool song. I think this, you know, going back to like their mix of being heartfelt, but also funny. Like, I think this kind of hits both of those. I think it's it sounds sort of funny because it's got that it almost reminded me of like a ween song where it's like hey let's do a country number now i think they even referred to this as like their cowboy song when they played it live but it definitely feels very heartfelt and genuine in if if you actually look at the lyrics it almost ha- it has like a ccr kind of vibe uh, yeah i i I think this is a cool song i had rockabilly yeah i, I wrote down rockabilly for this and this was a nice change of pace that shows you that they were capable of more than more than the chaff they were capable of singing and playing well and and tasteful so this i I loved this track again despite it being all over the place for jackass it's gonna sound like a diss but this one feels written in a way that most of the other material (laughs) does not feel written so unpunk so unpunk (laughs) To write, to write things down, <laughs> to plan changes. No, I I agree. It's definitely one of the better songs. I wrote down. Wow, they almost squeezed out a melody here. I <laughs> listen. I do <laughs> wish that he that they did some overdubs, aka on the vocals. Just he could have done a better job. I know he can do a little better, and especially on a song like this. I guess they just thought it was uncool to do, but it feels aggressively anti-singing and i missed it most on songs like this where there was a written melody over chord changes i just think it would be remarkably easy for these guys to have made these songs a bit better or significantly better even but yeah it was it was one of the better tunes and i definitely i had no idea this had anything to do with jackass this band so i definitely perked my head up when i heard this it felt like a drink of water in the desert almost (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i agree with that i think there's you're not going to lose street cred by trying to make certain aspects of it sound a little bit better so even if it's not overdubs maybe it's like another take at it or or something but i i agree it's not a a clinic in uh vocal uh prowess i'm not sure what the lyrics were about it felt like they were about something this is one of the ones where I actually listened to the words and we're like, wow, like he talks about the dirt scarcity and the environment of our South, the injustice of greed. I don't know if this was a political thing, but for some reason this, you know, perked up in my ears that like, oh, he might be singing about something while I can't put my finger on it. It felt like there might've been something there. I think the song's about a trip to Mexico and they were literally drinking Coronas and there was a, a Mexican woman who was walking around collecting the empties for to like exchange them for you know five or ten cents ah so i think that is that's at least my read on it and where i felt like it was a bit more of a heartfelt type of song um but that's pretty deep opinions may vary yeah you know i recently did a blind tournament taste test of popular American beers, the best-selling American beers, part of our 4th of July celebration this year. Oh, Jesus Christ. Why would you subject yourself to that? 
<laughs> I was celebrating my friend's green card. He just got his green card, and I was trying to do the most American things possible. <laughs> right. Anyway, it's interesting. Blow, blow to, off your thumbs with fireworks. <laughs> it was. In, we did go shoot guns and things like that. But it was interesting to te- to test your perception versus the reality. And the biggest surprise to me was, I, keep in mind, I'm blindfolded while I'm tasting these beers. How low I rated Corona. I had th- thought in my mind that it was a reasonably delicious beer compared to others like Bud Light, Coors Light, which were also in this tournament, things like that. But it truly was terrible. So I just I just want you, <laughs> audience, to just think about that and maybe consider a blind taste test. I can never actually drink a Corona again, that's my point, because now my brain has told me that it's actually really bad. And by the don't tell me about putting the lime in and being on the beach. That's not that doesn't count. No, I <laughs> that's not. Well, enough. that's probably what makes it taste good. That was probably like a mitigating lime. Sure. Uh, move there. What what beer won? Or what, did you have like brackets? Like what, how does this? Set Every up? person individually did a bracket. So for me, Pabst won, which is not overly surprising because oh, I've drank fucking a lot of Pabst in my life. <laughs> well, like, think about what it was up against. What do you think would win in your bracket? It was up against. It's, I just, it's all the same. I don't know. <laughs> it was. It definitely didn't taste the same. I also realized Miller High Life was also in the final, which that it checks out because I like Miller High Life. But I realized blindly tasting it that. The reason Miller High Life is called the Champagne of Beers, fun fact, is because it has way more carbonation than the other beers. Ah, I never, I that. never nice. noticed that before. Interesting. Well, and that has to affect the taste. Absolutely, I think to some level, right? Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I think we have discussed this album at length here, and so let us now render a verdict. I'm actually curious to see how this is going to go, given the nature of the conversation. Let's go around the horn and levy a verdict on whether you need to listen to this album before you die. What say you, Rob? I'm really a bit torn on this one. I don't want to just vote it in because I think it has an important place in musical history. But I do feel like the context you gave, Alan, and the research I did on my own this week was helpful, apart from just listening to the music, in feeling like these guys made a lot of interesting aesthetic choices. And like I said earlier, their approach to being in a band is part of what's so damn influential. And apart from that, I can't fault people for just being themselves in the studio, whatever that means, even though it was so aggressively untuneful, but the grooves were cool. I got something out of it. I'm going to say yes. Give it a listen. All right, Adam. Yeah. Tough week. And you guys both brought some great, insights i think rob i really appreciate what you were saying that how punk these guys were that they were the punkiest thing in the midst of punk (laughs) because of which is you know very meta right it's like looking in two mirrors but that is super cool however i think the volume of bad material on this album is enough for me to push it into the no although it is just by a hair so for me this week, it's no, but I definitely appreciated the conversation and listening to it. All fair points that I cannot disagree with. You know, I said this at the outset, there's a lot to dislike on this album. I'll circle back to this idea that when I finished this, I actually felt like I achieved something. <laughs> like it was like a test of endurance or, or something. And so, yeah, so all fair points. But for me, I think like them or not, they're a very important band, and I, I do tend to over-index on legacy 
and how enduring a, a, a group was. And even within that, there's there's enough good stuff here. Like I'm I'm sort of obsessed with this band at this point. I, that doesn't mean I'm going to listen to this album again. What I'm going to do is put together my own, you know, sort of actual album length cut of the songs that I like. Put those into a playlist. Keep them keep them going. Maybe check out some of their other stuff. So I think there's enough here to like to say yes and to put them on the list due to you know influence, impact, legacy all that stuff. Having said that, if I were to recommend this and you were to say, I'm not listening to 43 tracks of half nonsense, I would not argue with you. So there you have it. Minutemen, you made the list. Excellent work. We'll be sure to put Alan's primer playlist (laughs) in the episode notes, which will be three minutes long. (laughs) Putting you on the hook. Well, as I've been in real time, just like winnowing the playlist down as we speak. Right. <laughs> I was looking at it when we started the episode. I'm like, Jesus, I don't remember half these songs. And I looked a few minutes later. I'm like, oh, good. It's down to five. So thank like you. We're an hour and a half in or whatever. We got to <laughs> gotta pair these down. I think it's the fact that it's both enduring and singular for me. Just, just want to point that out. It's not enough that it just yeah. lasts, but it really doesn't sound like anything else. And I can't appreciate that. Totally. Yeah. I think you owe it to yourself to give this one spin. Right. I mean, I'm, you're l- certainly listening. The general public is listening to much worse music. Oh, uh, sure. I would yeah, say definitely. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to turn it over to Rob, who is in possession of our mailbag. What do you got for us this week? Thanks, Alan. I reached my hand in the old mailbag. Thanks for sticking with us this long through this long album of short vignettes. We're going to read one from Robin from the UK, who's writing to us about the Kinks Village Green episode. She said, you said you'd like to hear a Brit's perspective on the album. It was super fascinating hearing about it from your guys' perspective, an outsider's perspective for me. You guys identified that some elements of particularly the opening track, but really the whole record are tongue in cheek. I would go a step further to point out that the entire record is a sharp jab at conservative parts of British culture. The characters that Ray Davies is singing about cannot and will not see past the China Cups and Strawberry Jam and see the real problems in society going on in the cities, like poverty and racism. And yes, this does have a connection to the views of people who voted for Brexit much more recently, and many of whom still occupy these idyllic British villages to this day. Hope this makes sense and helps you appreciate this amazing album even more. Wow. Well, this person's way smarter than us and has much more worldly uh, Talk about context as well. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well put, Robin. Great context. And yeah, it's great to hear that from someone in the UK who can understand these things a little bit better because I think we were struggling with that. I have one more quick one. Fan Eric writes, your podcast is great. I've spent so many hours listening in my car and it has improved my life. Let's what? put that on a plaque or something. I've never heard that before. <laughs> There's the merch. Hopefully put you're, that on a you're shirt. only driving 55 on the dot <laughs> while you're listening to us to keep, you know, compliant. All of you guys are awesome and add great content. As far as this asshole Dimery goes, <laughs> he sucks. I've loved dissecting the 50 crappy albums with you guys, and I've discovered some good stuff as well. The fact that Pink Floyd's Metal and Animals are not on the list is a fucking travesty and makes the book total BS. 
Thanks, Eric, for those lovely compliments. And listen, we've we've talked some crap on Dimery's book, his methods. That said, Mr. Dimery, if you care to respond, to come on, we're going to be respectful to you. I want you to know that. But we do feel like, let's be honest, to even attempt to write this book, you had to have listened and be intimately familiar with something like 10 times as many as you were going to put in the book to reasonably whittle it down, right? And no one human being could do that. So while we do have problems, I agree. Many, many glaring omissions as we've as we've discussed. But yeah, by all means, author Robert Dimery, please, please give us a call. Well, why put Pink Floyd's best album, which in my mind is Animals, ahead of the eighth U2 album that is on this list? <laughs> yeah, it just makes no it doesn't make any sense. Makes no sense. I think that's all for the mailbag. If you want to write us about anything that we've said today or on any other episode, please let us know. Corrections, context, thank you, missives, whatever is on your mind. Send us an email over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We very much appreciate it. And now all that awaits us is our homework for next week. And as you may know, astute listener, next week cometh November. Our listener request month, thank you for sending in all your requests. Lo, these many weeks, it hath come to fruition now, and we shall be announcing the first listener request momentarily. Are you guys excited? I am. Rob has been keeping this from us. Uh, I know that we've gotten a lot of stuff in through the emails and through the Spotify uh, episode comments. You know, I've I've seen the stuff on the Instagram because we all can, but I'm very curious as to what the the total outcome has been. I'm going to be honest with you guys in the audience. You threw a lot of records at us, uh, quite quite more than I could have thought possible. Many very obscure ones, just just a huge litany. We've we've taken it all into our hearts and we will we'll try to feed that back into the albinator later, but the reality is the ones that are going to rise to the top, as you can imagine by the law of numbers, are some of the more popular bands and albums of our time. So, we got several votes right away, I dare say, for a certain British band that has five, count them, five albums on the list, and we have not covered yet. And that band's name is Radiohead. The record is... Nice. OK Computer. Wow. Yes. That's that's, that's right. a landmark album right there. Indeed. Yeah. I am surprised, now that you mentioned it, that we have not done Radiohead. I know. With so, so many... timing. Can't believe the Albinator hasn't brought it up yet. Shame on you, Albinator. With so many <laughs> records on the list, it was time. We actually got a couple different Radiohead suggestions, but OK Computer was the clear winner in the voting. So next week, strap in. We'll be, we'll be taking you down OK Computer lane. So look forward to that. Hell Listen yeah. to OK Computer this week. Alan, I'm going to throw it back to you to close it out. All right. Well, what, what a great homework assignment we have this week. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, thanks for hanging in there with us today to talk about Minutemen. With that, I've been Alan. I'm Rob. And I'm Adam. Boosh. Boosh.